This is the word of the Lord found in 2 Kings chapter 21. Starting with the first verse and reading to verse 18. 2 Kings 21, starting with verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel and worshipped all the host, host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire and observe times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they hearkened not, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spake by his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh king of Judah hath done these abominations and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done that which was evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt even unto this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another beside his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin that he sinned are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. I do want to say some thank yous. Uh, thank you for a good supper. Thank you for some good song, lady. 
Thanks to this church and to the pastor of this church for the invitation to be with you at this time. I do appreciate you. I appreciate the faithfulness and diligence and courage of your pastor and treasure his friendship. Appreciate all of y'all being here tonight. There's some folks that came from further distance than we did, and I, I don't take it for granted. Thank you. I appreciate you being here on a Friday night. The Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of that. Amen. But it's still hard to do sometimes, isn't it? Thank you for doing it. May God bless you for doing that. Um, I don't know why this text is on my mind. I do have a message with it. But I, I don't understand the applicability to this audience. And over the years, it seems to me that the Lord has showed me don't try to figure out what's appropriate for the occasion. Just preach what you have. And that's this text is what's on my mind tonight. Manasseh reigned longer than any of the kings of Judah and Israel. I think the next one I can think of that reigned anywhere near as long was a good king, Asa. And he reigned about 51 years. But Manasseh reigned 50 and 5 years. He had a good daddy. His name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah began to reign at 25 and launched through his leadership a revival in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. And in the first 14 years of his reign, not only did he launch that revival and put away idols and restore the proper usage of the temple, the house of the Lord, but he faced down the mighty Assyrian Empire that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Great fearfulness. And God came down and smote the Assyrian army and delivered Jerusalem. Hezekiah had fallen sick and he prayed God. God gave him 15 more years of time on earth. And so Hezekiah was a great king. He was a very good one. Hezekiah means he whom Jehovah strengthens, or he whom strengthened by Yahweh is what the name means. And his mother, Hesaba, her name means my delight is in her. Manasseh means forgetfulness. Do you suppose sometimes you and I might receive a good heritage? And people guide us and lead us and teach us in good things. And we're just forgetful of it. Do you suppose the Lord might ever bless us richly and we're just forgetful of His blessings? Manasseh means forgetfulness. Manasseh came to the throne at 12 years old and he reigned 50 and 5 years. That means he died at 67. That's how old I am right now. So you kind of know where he was at when he finished his reign, finished his years on earth. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. To the degree that the Lord said the chastisement of destruction is coming upon Jerusalem and Judah. And there were times that it could be put off for a while, but it would not be avoided. The Lord would bring that severe chastisement upon Jerusalem and Judah. So let's just look at these things that have been said, and then I want to read some comments on Manasseh in the Scripture in connection with that. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. I want to say something important. The things that are 
in the sight of the Lord. Of course, everything. The Lord sees everything. But the way that the Lord sees them is the way they really are. Amen. I have my own perception about things. So do you. So do a lot of people. That's our perception. And our perception is important. But I want you to know all of our perceptions are subjective. The way that God sees things is an objective, absolute truth. And that needs to be said because that's being uh, obliterated in the culture that we live. There is such a thing as absolute, objective truth. And the way God sees things is the way that truth is. So... He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. That means He did that which was evil. Period. After the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel, Manasseh did like and worse than the Canaanites that were destroyed before Israel came into the land. For He built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. So all of the places where idols were worshipped that his dad had gotten rid of, he built them again. And he set up groves. Those were places for very ungodly worship. And he worshipped the host of heaven. Seems to me that Manasseh was probably really into astrology. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He didn't just practice astrology. He moved the practice of astrology right into the temple. This is the temple that God gave the plans to David. David passed the plans to Solomon along with a lot of building materials. Solomon spent seven years and built them just the way the Lord had instructed him. And when they dedicated the temple, the Lord sent fire and glory down from heaven to consume the sacrifice and show, I'm going to bless this place. This is exactly what Manasseh is now bringing astrological worship into. And he made his son pass through the fire. That means he sacrificed his children to false gods. And observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. In addition to astrology and child sacrifice, Manasseh was very much tied in with what we would call today the occult. I don't think that word appears in the Bible, but we use it in this time. It means trying to get spiritual guidance from spirits other than the living God. You know, brothers and sisters, you and I shouldn't even pray to angels. The way angelic help works is this. This is the way the Bible says you pray directly to God in the name of Jesus Christ, and if He wants to send an angel, He'll do it. That's our relationship to the angel. I believe angels intervene in our lives. I believe angels sometimes protect us in ways we don't understand. I believe angels bring messages from God. But you don't communicate and say, Oh, angel, come help me. You say, Lord, help me. And he may help you direct, or he may send another human being as the angel, or he may send somebody like Gabriel. It's his choice. He knows how he wants to provide the help. Talk to your father. And he set up a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house 
of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Manasseh, in addition to bringing in symbols of astrology into the temple, he brought in the, the worship of the idols of the groves right into the house of God. And of this house of God, said God, God said, this is a place that I'll allow Israel to rest and stay just so long as they keep my commandments. There was a steady place for them to rest. But they hearkened not, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Now I really want to make a point that I hope you'll listen to. Manasseh made Judah to do this, Jerusalem to do this, but I want you to see that the Bible doesn't tell us that Manasseh compelled them to do this. It says Manasseh seduced them to do this. There's a different... It didn't mean he sent forth his armies and said, worship Baal and practice astrology or I'm going to kill you. He enticed them. He made it seem cool. He made it seem fun. He made it seem modern. He made it seem with it. And he enticed them and they were seduced. He didn't force them. He just influenced them and they were influenced. Do you suppose that might be happening in our culture today? Amen. Do you suppose that, I mean, now we even see some things that are a little more forcible and it's, it's uh, concerning. But up until this point, we haven't seen all that much compulsion. We've seen a lot of seduction. And we've seen a lot of good people be seduced into this. Into the culture of self-worship. Into the culture of turning from the Lord and His Word. Into the culture of pride and, and putting self before God. We've seen that happen. That's what happened in Jerusalem at this time. And the Lord spake by his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations, and hath done wickedly above all the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. That is, this news is going to be so shocking. It's going to be so uh, surprising and so in, involving that it's going to cause your ears to feel like they're tingling. It's going to be a severe chastisement. And I will stretch over Jerusalem, the land of Samaria, and the plummet of the house of Ahab. Remember, God had the whole house of Ahab and Jezebel destroyed. Yeah. And then Samaria was besieged and destroyed and the people divided and scattered across the Assyrian Empire. 
He says, And I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done that which was evil in my sight, and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt, even unto this day. So he says there's been a whole lot of sinning, even from the time they came out of Egypt. That's the nation, uh, the nation of Israel has done. And God had borne with it, and he had sent prophets, and he had given chastisements, and they had turned back to him and turned away and turned back to him and turned away. He said, but it's reached the point that I'm going to bring a severe chastisement. It's going to be destruction and captivity. And, he's, and God promised he's not going to turn from it. There's a day of delay of it. There was a putting forth for a space, but God didn't turn from it. And then verse 16 says, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another beside his sins wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. In addition to idolatry and astrology and wizards and enchantments and familiar spirits and all of this, there was just a lot of innocent people being killed. And do you see how this goes together so often in human history? That when people are trying to truly serve God, the weak and the innocent have this umbrella of protection. Fathers, their hearts turn toward the children. And children, their hearts turn toward the fathers. And the fathers and mothers cherish each other. And there's a protection for the young and for the weak. And... They put God above all. A husband will love God foremost and his wife second above anything else and his children after that and his hobbies and his works and his friends all after that. There will be a proper prioritization of serving. God will be first. Your spouse will be next. Your children will be next. Your friends and your hobbies and your work and all that will come afterward. There will be that, and it works so well for protecting those that are young and weak and old and infirm. But when you start turning from that and you set things above the true and living God, who suffers so much? The weak, the innocent, the little ones, the old ones, the women. I mean, really what happens is things fall apart until it's such a degree of selfishness that if you're strong, you do well until somebody stronger than you comes along. It's kind of like the world was before the flood came. The earth was filled with violence and corruption. That's the way it was in Jerusalem at this time. And Manasseh was quite involved in it. His leadership was long. His leadership was intense and his leadership was seductive. And that's how Jerusalem and Judah not only began to worship false gods and have the astrology and the wizards and the familiar spirits and the occult and all of this, but he shed innocent blood in Jerusalem from one end to another and God's chastisement, a very severe chastisement for Judah and Jerusalem was on its way. 
Now let me read some scriptures in connection with that to show you that God would not turn from His purpose on this. If I go two chapters over to 2 Kings uh, chapter 23, we read about a reign of Manasseh's grandson. Now Manasseh's son Amon was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he reigned two years. But Manasseh's grandson was a little fellow named Josiah. He came to the throne at eight even younger than Manasseh. You know what the Bible says about him? He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Manasseh began to clean up... I mean Manasseh. Josiah began to clean up the temple and make it fit for the worship as prescribed in the law of Moses. And you know what they found when they were cleaning up the temple? The Bible! They'd been away from the Bible so long, they started cleaning up the temple, they found the Bible. And And you know the Word of God is in the house of God. Part of the reason is the pillar and ground of the truth. The Word of God will be in the house of God. It's part of the reason I like the King James translation better than any other uh, commonly used English translation is because it was taken from the original text of not only the Masoretic Hebrew, but the Byzantine Greek, which was used in the church throughout the ages... Until that translation, most of the other popular English translations today don't use those original texts. It's like they discovered something, and it's like, well, you mean the Bible hasn't been in the church all these ages? Yes, it has, because the Word of God is kept in the house of God. So Josiah discovers that, and oh, he's just penitent. He hears them read the Bible to him, he tears his clothes. We haven't been doing this stuff. We haven't been following God. What's going to happen to us? He sent some messengers to a prophet. The prophet was a woman. Her name was Huldah. She lived in the college court. Can you imagine the true prophet of the Lord living in a college? <laughs> and being a woman? But that's the way it was. There was a woman living in the college quarters of Jerusalem. She was truly a prophet of God. And they sent the messengers and she said, Of a truth, God's chastisement and judgment is coming. But send back to the king of Judah and say, Because your heart was tender because you turn toward the Lord with your heart. These things shall not come. There will be peace in your days. And they had a great revival. It was a great revival. But after Josiah reigned, the first of his sons that reigned was wicked. The second of his sons that reigned was wicked. His grandson that reigned after that was wicked. And then the third of his sons that reigned after that. He had three sons and a grandson reigned. They were all bad after him. And God's chastisement came. So in 2 Kings chapter 23, reading 24 verses 24 through 26, we read this. Moreover, the workers with familiar spirits and the wizards and the images and the idols and all the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, did Josiah put away that he might perform the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord? And like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. According to all the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him. Notwithstanding, the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. Spite of Manasseh's good grandson, Josiah, the sincerity of his heart, the revival that he led, the good things that happened, 
the chastisement of captivity and destruction was still on its way. Let's go over one more chapter. 2 Kings chapter 24. Starting with verse 1. Read through verse 3. Speaking of Josiah's son Jehoiakim, which was a wicked king. In his days Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the children of Ammon, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did. Verse 4, And also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood which the Lord would not pardon. Now finally let me read Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 4. And... uh, I'm hoping that we can start talking about the great descendant of Manasseh named Jesus Christ here very soon because that's it's not the gospel if you don't go to the cross. Jeremiah chapter 15 starting with verse 1 but I'm after verse 4. Then said the Lord unto me Me is Jeremiah, by the way. Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall come to pass if they say unto thee, Whither shall we go forth? Then thou shalt tell them, Thus saith the Lord, Such as are for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for the famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. And I will appoint over them four kinds, saith the Lord, the sword to slay, and the dogs to tear, and the fowls of the heaven, and the beast of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will cause them to be removed into all kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for that which he did in Jerusalem. What do y'all think of Manasseh? What do y'all think of the man whose name was forgetfulness in the 55 years that he reigned and how he worshipped idols and seduced Jerusalem and Judah and how he shed innocent blood from one end to another? Probably don't think too well of him. Probably shouldn't think too well of him. Those actions were evil. And there was great chastisement coming upon Manasseh as well as Jerusalem, as well as Judah because God is righteous. He's holy. He's just. And that was coming upon them. But as the text said, the acts of Manasseh are also recorded in the chronicles of the kings of Judah and Jerusalem. So bear with me just a little while longer and let me read about Manasseh in 2 Chronicles chapter 33 because, you know, we actually sing a hymn about Manasseh. Some of y'all probably know what I'm talking about right now. But we sing a hymn that mentions this wicked 55-year reign, Manasseh. It's this hymn. I believe it's 355 in this particular hymn. 
Beneath the sacred throne of God, I saw a river rise. The streams were peace and pardoning blood descending from the skies. Angelic minds cannot explore this deep, unfathomed sea. Tis void of bottom, brim, or shore, and lost in deity. I stood amazed and wondered when or why this ocean rose that wafts salvation down to men, his traitors and his foes. That sacred flood from Jesus' veins was free to take away a Mary's or Manasseh's stains or sins more vile than they. Now the Mary under consideration right there at the end of the hymn, at least in our hymnal that we have here, fourth verse, the Mary under consideration is Mary Magdalene. Out of her the Lord cast seven devils. You know, the Scripture never says that Mary was a prostitute. She might have been. One of her seven devils might have been one of sexual promiscuity. I don't know. But what the Bible tells us is she suffered from seven devils and the Lord set her free. And the Lord blessed her to be the first person that the Bible records that saw Him after He rose from the dead. That sacred flood from Jesus' veins was free to take away a Mary's stains. A Mary's or Manasseh's stains or sins more vile than they. Let's read about that. Second Chronicles chapter 33. Starting with the first verse, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and five years in Jerusalem. But he did that which, but did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, likened to the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down, and he reared up altars for Balaam, and made groves, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom, also he observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit and with wizards. He wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever, neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed to your fathers, so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh made Judah and Israel and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err, and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction... He besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him 
And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Now after this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley even to the entering in at the fish gate and compassed about Ophel and raised it up to a very raised it up a very great height and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet unto the Lord their God only. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto his God and the words of the seers that spake to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. His prayer also and how God was entreated of him and all his sins and his trespass and the places wherein he built high places and set up groves and graven images before he was humbled. Behold, they are written among the saying sayings of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house, and Amon his son reigned in his stead. What could change a man this wicked and this hardened, guilty of this much bloodshed, guilty of this much idolatry? What could change him the grace of Jesus Christ. Manasseh's in heaven. Now, I'm one of these folks that don't believe everybody's in heaven. I think Esau's not. I think Cain is probably not. I think Balaam's probably not. I think there's plenty of people that have walked this earth that won't be there. But Manasseh will. And it's amazing, isn't it? Is not grace amazing? Yes. It's amazing. What had to happen for this to be done? It meant every one of those the sins of casting his little children into a fire to a false god. Every one of those innocent people whose blood he shed. Every one of those wizards and witches he paid off to get advice from spirits that weren't the Spirit of God. All of those grievous sins whereby he seduced Jerusalem and Judah to sin against God. All of those sins, that meant while He hung upon the cross in the darkness, the Lord Jesus Christ was paying for every one of those things that Manasseh had done. And here's why I find comfort in that. My great hope, great hope, very real hope, is the Lord Jesus Christ was paying for every one of the things I've done. That sacred flood from Jesus' veins was free to take away Mary's or Manasseh's stains or sins more vile than they. Can we not think of some other instances like this in the Bible? How about the Apostle Paul who not only took women and men and cast them into prison, but he says in Acts chapter 26 before his testimony to King Agrippa, and Porcius Festus, he said, I compelled people to blaspheme. Can you imagine that kind 
of torment that He put people through. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ paid for those sins as He was dying. As He was in the darkness crying out, why had God forsaken Him? He was paying for the sins of Saul of Tarsus. He was paying for the sins of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. It's the same case. He was paying for the sins of David who took Uriah's wife and then had Uriah's own fellow soldiers participate in his murder. These are grievous sins. Alright, so God's grace is great. And God turned Manasseh. And Manasseh was turned and he repented. And he called out upon God. And it says his prayer that he prayed unto his God. And he was talking about the real God. Same evidence that God gave to Ananias so that Ananias would baptize Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus is blind. He's seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming uh, to lay his hands on him that he may receive his sight. And behold, he prayeth. Grace. Grace that goes beyond what, what I might even approve of. Lord, <laughs> really? And the Lord would say, think about yourself and look in the mirror. Think about yourself. What great grace. And so, the first and foremost lesson that I hope that we can go away with is that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is so successful that it's deeper than you and I really can even lay hold on with our greatest imagination. You know, He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. His salvation goes beyond... the. It's the privilege of the Gospel to try to tell of how great it is and to always fall short but God's grace is great the other point is the older one that I made is Manasseh seduced Jerusalem and Judah and then something else that I want to again emphasize is that though Manasseh repented though Manasseh was the recipient of the grace of God though Manasseh turned and tried to do that which was right in the sight of the Lord during those last years he lived on the earth. Judah and Jerusalem were still headed for captivity. The walls would be broken down. The temple would be burned with fire. Would still happen. Because, you know, brothers and sisters, what we do in our lives is connected to other people. That is, when I do good or you do good, when people do good... It works for good for other people. Just think of what Laban said to Jacob. I have learned by experience that the Lord hath blessed me for your sake. God blessed Laban because God blessed Jacob. What about Joseph? Not only was the whole land of Egypt saved from famine, Joseph, in his righteous service to God, saved his family. Picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. What about Noah? Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord and his whole family and the air-breathing creatures of earth were saved. What about Daniel? Daniel faithfully prayed to God. Not only were he and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego spared, but all the wise men and wizards and astrologers in Babylon were saved. 
You see, goodness doesn't just rest there with you as an individual. It has ripples like a a pebble falling in a pond going out. It ripples out and has effect to other people. So does sin. Remember what happened when Achan took of the cursed treasures of Jericho, which God forbade. And he took a wedge of gold and some shekels of silver and goodly Babylonish garments, and he took them from Jericho, which he was not supposed to do, and hid them under his tent. You know what happened? In the next battle, 36 soldiers of Israel died, as far as we know, innocent of that particular thing. You see... The Scripture tells us that no man liveth unto himself and no man dieth unto himself. So what's the point? The point is, Manasseh was a very evil man that by God's grace was changed. Changed radically. Changed fundamentally. As a matter of fact, anytime anybody's born again, it's a radical, fundamental change. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, all things are become new. Old things are passed away. It's a radical change. But God had been sending these messages to Judah, Jerusalem, Manasseh. These things are wrong. Turn from them. And they didn't. They persisted. They persisted. They persisted until finally Manasseh was hauled into the thorns in prison by the Assyrians. And there he learned his lesson like the prodigal son and finally came home ready to be a servant in the house of the Father. So the message to me is this. When the Lord sends His Word to us, whether it's a word of commendation or especially a word of rebuke, we need to repent as quickly as possible. We need to minimize the damage that we do in our walk here on earth so that it doesn't do so much damage to others. And I've talked with people before, and I see this, I remember talking to one young man, and he was headed in a bad direction in many ways, and his mother was such a good woman. And she was so concerned, and I said, you know, you need to change this. This this is really hurting your mother. And he said, you know, and I wish it wouldn't. You know, what I do is what I do, and I wish you wouldn't take it to herself. I said, a mother can't do that. She's bound to you. She's bound to you in love. What you do is going to affect her. Brothers and sisters, what you and I do is going to affect not only our loved ones, but people we don't even know. Manasseh didn't know those future generations in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar marched in and destroyed. He didn't know them because he was dead. He didn't know those folks. They still suffered for his transgressions. They didn't suffer judgment. They didn't suffer everlasting punishment. But behold the goodness and severity of God. They suffered the severe chastisement that God said He would bring for what Jerusalem and Judah did in the days of Manasseh. When you and I think about what God has instructed us, especially the commandments we have given us as disciples of Christ in the New Testament, when we realize that we uh, aren't doing those or that we are doing things we're commanded not to, as quickly as possible, repent. As quickly as possible. If God is 
calling on you to forgive someone who has trespassed against you, don't play around with that. Forgive them. If God's calling on you to submit yourself in baptism as He's commanded to show forth His death, burial, and resurrection because you know Jesus is the Christ, don't tarry with that. Do it. I'm not talking about avoiding getting out of hell. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about avoiding damaging other people in this and future generations. Because the way you live your life on earth is going to have an impact on others even if you don't know that many people. If God is commanding you to lay aside alcohol, lay aside a drug problem, lay aside promiscuous sex, lay aside pornography, do it now. Do it as quickly as you can. You don't have to tell anybody about it. Go before the Lord. And if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, when you hear things like this, it's usually, you know, you've got to do this quick because a truck could run over you in the highway and you're going to head straight for the lake of fire. No, we don't believe that. We just don't believe that. All that are God's children will be held by Him and nothing from His love can sever those whom God has made His own. But I tell you what can happen. God is so faithful, He will have every one of His children in heaven. He is so faithful, He will chastise His children. Amen. And it won't be forgotten. And so it's urgent. The preaching of the gospel and the obedience of what? God commands there in New Testament Scriptures is urgent. We need to do it, and we need to do it now. If God is commanding you, it says, I've given you the gift to be able to read sufficiently, read the whole Scripture, start at Genesis 1-1 tonight, and read a chapter or two every day until a year or two from now you've finished it. Don't wait on that. The Lord is telling you to go before Him in prayer and pray for someone. Or pray a private confession of something you've done to Him because He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins. Do it tonight. Don't wait. I'm not talking about escaping hell. I'm talking about minimizing the damage and maximizing the good that not only is in your life while you walk on earth, but other people's too. Especially those that are close to you. It's that important. Brothers and sisters, if there is that... You know, in matters of addiction, alcohol, drugs, porn, sex, all of that, sometimes a person will say, Lord God, I want to get rid of this. I hate it. I hate what it's doing to me. Take away that desire. Let me never feel it again. God is able to do that, but you know what my experience is? He almost never does do that. You know what He does? He gives you the grace and strength to resist it one day. And then you get up the next day and He gives you the grace and strength to resist it one more day. It's just like give us day by day our daily bread. And if that is something you contend with, it doesn't mean you're worse than me. It doesn't mean you're not a child of God. Doesn't mean it just means you need to do it, and you need to do it now, and you need to do it every day until you overcome it, until you triumph over it. So that 
when you finished your walk here on earth, the harm that you've done is set at a minimum. And the good that you've left is made to a maximum. Blessed are they that die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, for they do rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. You know, some people actually think their works follow them in heaven. It means instead of instead of driving a instead of instead of driving a a, a little uh, a Chevrolet up there, you're going to be driving around in a in a, a Ferrari or something. Isn't that ridiculous? You know, if you're heirs and joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't get any richer of an inheritance than that. That's not what it's talking about. Your works don't follow you to heaven. Your works follow you on earth. And you know that's so. You have known people that have lived that kind of life and they may have been gone now for 40 or 50 years and they're still a blessing in your life. Amen. You know that. Don't you want to be that? Amen. Start now. Start now. Sure is the chastisement of God to His children. Great is the blessing of grace to God's children because of the triumph and success and everlasting love of This is the word of the Lord found in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. Galatians, 20, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Again, to... Uh, Fairhaven Church, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thanks to your pastor, Brother Jonathan. It's a privilege. It's an honor to get to be with you for this meeting. And thank you to everybody that's here. There's folks here from long distances, and I appreciate it. I don't take it for granted. I ask for your continued prayers that one name, one name only, would be glorified, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Y'all have made me feel welcome. I trust you'll make each other feel welcome. That's great. That's one, but there's one name for the glorification. And that's the name of the one that deserves it, Amen. our Lord Jesus. Amen. And I hope you'll pray just that. Hope you'll also pray a prayer where you say, Lord Jesus, send me the gospel. Amen. That uh, the gospel will not only have free course, but it'll fall on good ground, not only in your beloved brothers and sisters, but in your heart Amen. and in your life. 
This is an old text with me. I tried to preach it before. Bear with me. It's just on my heart again uh, this morning. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you the subject I want to address. And that is the matter of identity. Three of the most important questions a child of God can ask and have answered while they live here on the earth are these. Who is the Lord? Who am I? What would the Lord have me to do? Those are the three questions I'd like to examine in the light of Scripture this morning. First, who is the Lord? Second, who am I? That is, who are you? And then third, what would the Lord have me to do? But before I get there, let me look at these scriptures verse by verse. It says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As I study the scriptures, I find three ways in which a person can be a child of God. The first is simply God by grace causes them to be born again. And I want you to know that is a sovereign, immediate work of God alone And the person that becomes a born-again child of God is a passive recipient of that grace. They are born immediately by the Spirit of God. It is not synergistic. It's not them working with God. It's something God gives them because He loves them and He purposes it to happen. And it always succeeds. He calls them to life and they live... In Jesus Christ, they move from being dead in trespasses and sins to alive in Jesus Christ. And they can't say no, and they always say yes, because He makes them willing in the day of His power. It's something God does alone. And it is always that way. There are no special cases. The wind blows where it listeth. That means the wind blows where it wants to. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou may hearest the sound thereof, but thou knowest not whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. The reason that a person can't say no is because spiritually speaking, they are dead in trespasses and sins and unable to say no or yes. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Not they that will hear, they that do hear. And the reason they do hear is because He gives them life in Himself. It is a sovereign, immediate, always successful, everlasting work of God to cause someone to become a child of God by grace. But there's another way that you can become a child of God or a son of God. It's mentioned in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it said, For He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But to as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, but of God. This is speaking of somebody who's already been born as a child of God by grace. But they become an acknowledged, they perceive that sonship when they believe in Jesus Christ 
by the faith which He's given them in the new birth. They believe on the name of the Son of God, but they've already been born previously, not by the blood, not by the will of man, not by the will of the flesh. They've been born of God. Now they become a perceived, acknowledged, they understand that they have a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. They believe that. They are able to see themselves a little more as God sees them, which is God's Son. You understand that? Is that clear? You become objectively a child of God, a son of God, by God sovereignly causing you to be born again before you ever do anything. But when you hear the Gospel, when one of God's born-again children believe on His name, they become a child of God, not just in God's sight, in their own sight. That's a wonderful blessing. That's not the only way you become a child of God, though. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Ye have heard it said of old, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you that you love your enemy, that you pray for them that despitefully use you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his reign to fall on the just and the unjust. That is, now, when you start loving people in an active way, not only those that like you, but even those that you can perceive as your enemies, when you do that, you know in what sense you become a child of God? In the eyes of others. They see you acting like God who sends His reign on the just and the unjust. And so somebody that's following the Lord in that way is not only objectively a child of God in God's sight, not only have they been blessed to become a child of God in their sight, now they are a child of God in the sight of others. And so this scripture that we read here, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, these folks have been blessed to exercise faith, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that uh, they are by grace a child of God. And I believe we've got many here this morning that are children of God, not only because God has exercised His marvelous, victorious, unstoppable grace on on you, but because you yourself have acknowledged and seen and rejoiced in that grace. Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is no better visible expression of your belief and your faith than that you submit yourself unto a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ for being baptized in the name, showing that picture of His death, His burial, and His resurrection, rise up to walk in newness of life as disciples of your Savior. And so here, ye are all, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There, that means in Christ, there in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice these three categories. Jew nor Greek is an expression of ethnicity. 
that's a racial division. You know, there's a lot of racial groups in the human race today. There are a number of different kinds of Asian folks, Polynesians, Micronesians, Blacks, Whites, Hispanics. There's all kinds of races. Aborigines, Inuits. There's a lot of different racial divisions. But there's only one that was actually designated in the Scripture. Jew and Greek, or Jew and Gentile. And that was one that God commanded for a period of time until His Son should come, born among those that are physically, racially Jews, in order to save His chosen people out of every nation. But there is a racial division that is the strongest racial division that has or ever will be in the human race, and God inspires the Apostle Paul to write, there in Jesus Christ, it no longer exists. There in Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. That's racial division. That's ethnicity. There is neither bond nor free. Talk about social groups or class groups. You know, most society has classes. You've got your aristocracy at the top. You've got your merchant class. You've got your soldiers. You've got your peasants. You know, certain areas you've got your Brahmins. You've got your warriors. You've got your farmers. You've got your untouchables. Isn't that sad how the human race does that? How we divide up into all these classes. You know, a few years ago we had a movement called Occupy Wall Street. Everybody was mad at the 1%. 1% of the human race controls so much of the, of the wealth. It's just not fair. It's just not right. And we make such a big deal of class divisions within society. You've got the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. You've got all of these, these academic and societal divisions of class. But I want you to know this. In Christ Jesus, there's no classes. Amen. You talk about all the divisions of classes. How much greater division than you can you get than this? Slave or free? In that day, and sadly to say, even in this day, there were people that thought they owned other people. Now, brothers and sisters, that's just not right. It's not right. Jesus Christ taught that it was not right when He said, as you would that men should do unto you, do ye also unto them. How would you like to be owned by somebody else as their property? Would you like that? Would you do that? I don't expect you would. If you don't like that, don't do that. Amen. So of all the class divisions, proletariat and bourgeoisie, and aristocracy and merchants and warriors and peasants and serfs and all that, there's probably been never a greater division of classes than bond, which means slave, and free. Free people. That's a very strong, definite social division. And in Christ Jesus, it does not exist. Amen. There is neither male nor female. Now that gets to a very biological level, even though our society has gone kind of crazy and doesn't recognize that anymore. Male or female 
is a biological thing. It gets down to the cellular level of chromosomes, XX or XY chromosomes, and as a result of the fall, there are genetic defects where you have different, you've got some people that are YY and some are XXY and things, but 99 point something percent are either XX or XY, they're either male or they're female, and Sometimes it almost seems like they're a different species. <laughs> but they're not. And in Christ Jesus, even the division of gender disappears. Do you know who the first person to see the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead as recorded by Scripture? It was a woman. It was Mary Magdalene. So in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. Well, then that tells you a bunch of things of what your identity is not. Uh-huh. So what is your identity? What does that mean your identity is? It goes on to say, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed. That means one of the faithful, and heirs according to the promise, what a child of God is at the very core of who he is, what the identity of someone in Christ is, is they are the possession and child of the living God. Amen. That's who at your very deepest level you are. Now that's question number two. Let's address question number one. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord who is God? And when I say Lord and I say God, that's two different meanings. Lord means the ruler of all. That's what Lord means. Jesus Christ is Lord, both of the quick and the dead. He's the Lord of the dead and the living. God means one who receives worship. God is not the God of the dead. He is only the God of the living because only the living have the spiritual life required to worship Him. So, He, Jesus Christ, is both Lord and God. But I'm asking the question, who is the Lord? That is, who rules? And that was the question that Saul of Tarsus asked. The very first question he asked when Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus. You remember? Before he became the Apostle Paul... He was Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is a town in southeast Turkey. And he was born there and had Roman citizenship. But he grew up and was educated in Jerusalem. Had a great education. Was succeeding in his career as a lawyer or a scribe. And and very zealous, cruelly, uh, very diligently zealous. Persecuting Christians. Persecuting the church. And he was on his way after persecuting saints in Jerusalem. He was on his way to the great Syrian city of Damascus to find Christians that were there. And apparently he had a group of armed men to help him enforce the commission he had from the council. And on the way, he met the Lord Jesus Christ, but he didn't know who it was. He just knew knew he met the Lord. Because there appeared a great light shining from heaven So much so that he went down to the earth and he was frightened and the men that were with him were frightened 
they didn't see anybody speaking to him, but they heard a voice. They heard the voice of Saul talking to somebody. And the very first question that Saul of Tarsus asked is, Who art thou, Lord? That's one of the most important questions you can ask in your life. And to come up with the right answer, the correct answer, is essential. Who art thou, Lord? And I hope that it's sometimes in your life you either have asked that or will ask that soon. Who is the Lord? Who rules this universe? Who is in control of all things, even if He doesn't cause all things? Who is it that is the Master? And if you're a science fiction fan and you think there's more than one universe so that there's a metaverse, I'm asking who is the Lord of the metaverse? Who is the ruler over all things? And you know right in that same chapter, there in that same conversation where Saul of Tarsus asked that question, the answer came immediately. And I want you to know the Bible answer. And I hope one day that for you and me, very thoroughly, the Bible answer will become our personal answer too. Because when he asked that question, Who art thou, Lord? The answer came back, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The Lord of the universe, and if there are more of all universes, the Lord of all is Jesus Christ. That's a fundamental question. That's one you need to ask. That's one you need to have an answer. That's one you need to have the right answer. It's proven in a myriad of ways. Even from the beginning, when Moses was writing the first book of the Bible, Genesis, God said to Adam and Eve that the seed of woman would have enmity with the seed of the serpent. And the seed of woman would have his heel bruised by the serpent, serpent, but he would bruise the serpent's head. What a clear prophecy of the one who would go to the cross and have his heel bruised so badly there, but who would deal the devil a mortal blow so that the works and the accusations and what perceived triumph the devil had would be destroyed. For this purpose, the Lord Jesus Christ came that He might destroy the works of the devil. And I want you to know that Jesus Christ has destroyed the works of the devil. And even though the devil may be loosed for a little season, and he may gather the nations, and he might have the nations surround the camp of the saints, I want you to know that the devil has been defeated, and it only remains for his defeat to be manifested to all the creatures in the universe because he will be totally defeated. He was defeated at the cross. The completeness of that defeat is yet to be revealed, but it will be revealed. Who is Lord? Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who walked the earth as the Son of Man, who even now sits at the right hand of God, God sitting at the right hand of God, go figure that one out, making intercession for us. 
Now, that prophecy in Genesis wasn't the only one. There's prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that points to Him being the Lord. Do you know what happened in the Old Testament if a leper were healed? Do you know what the celebration of His healing was? They were to go get two little birds, clean birds. And they were to take those birds and one of them was to be put in an earthen vessel. The Son of God came into a body, an earthen vessel to be taken over running water. And in that earthen vessel were the implements of priesthood, the hyssop that was used to sprinkle blood on the ark. Cedar, that was the very wood they built the temple out of. Scarlet, depicting the blood that would be shed and also in the veil, dividing the holy from the holiest of holies in the temple. And that little bird was to be taken over running water, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ said, He that believeth in Me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Taken over running water, and there slain, and his blood was to be poured forth. And then the living bird was to be taken and put in the blood of that bird that was slain taken to an open field and let go to fly in the sky. Can you get a clearer picture of how God's children are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ that they might go to heaven? Is it a coincidence that the children of Israel went free on Passover night after they slew the Passover lamb and then the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified when? On Passover. Now, that's just a few of them. You can go on and on and on. And it just shows over and over and over again that not only was Jesus the Christ, but He is the Lord of the universe. Someone that fulfills that many prophecies, somebody that does that so much according to the Scriptures, when He rises from the dead after His crucifixion and says, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. You know what I believe? That He has all power in heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is Lord. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus our Lord, who considered it not robbery to be equal with God, but being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself, he became obedient as a servant, and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow of things in the earth or things under the earth or things in heaven and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's the first question. Who is Lord? Here's the resounding answer over and over again. Proven not only by Scripture, but even proven in the lives of the apostles who wouldn't die to support a lie. They were going forth proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord at the risk of their very lives. The first question is, who is Lord? That's what the apostle Paul, that's what Saul of Tarsus says. And the answer is clear. The Lord is Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's the third question? Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? That's what Paul asked right after that. He asked that question. Right after he found out who the Lord was, the Lord was Jesus, who he was persecuting, he was ready to obey because he knew what the Lord, that the Lord was Jesus. 
Now he wanted to know how should he obey? Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? That's question number three. And I hope you and I will ask that day by day by day. Lord, what would you have me to do? So much of that is given to us in the New Testament. It was a specific command for Saul of Tarsus. He was to continue his journey, blind though he was, led by the hand into Damascus. He was to go to a particular address in the street named Straight and ask for a particular individual, Ananias, who would come in and lay his hands on him that he might receive his sight. And then after that, he received another directive from the Lord when he was asking, Lord, what would thou have me to do? And that was he should be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so he was. And he rose up a servant of Jesus Christ from that day forward. In fact, he started preaching pretty quick thereafter, so much so that he made people mad and they had to let him down over the walls of Damascus in a basket to escape the capture of the governor. That's an important question. Lord, you're the Lord. What would you have me to do? Because there's something important about question two. And here's what I'd like to devote most of the rest of my time to. Is, who are you? And the way I should ask that personally is, who am I? What am I? What is my identity? There's a lot of wrong answers that people have come up with over the ages. It's important that you get this one correct. Who are you? Paul, Saul of Tarsus eventually changed his name to Paul. He found out the answer to that. He was a young man when he first asked that question, Who art thou, Lord? What wouldst thou have me to do? And he preached and he ministered to the Lord's children for many years. And when he got to be an older man, he was in a trial in a court case that was kind of seemed to be going against him. And as a Roman citizen, he appealed unto Caesar... And uh, they said, all right, you're a Roman citizen. We'll send you to the venue you've asked for, Caesar's Court. They put him on a ship with about 360 other people. The ship was, uh, the whole voyage was managed by a particular centurion of Augustus' band. His name was Julius. And uh, they were sailing on the way, and they had to stop over in Crete. And Paul warned them, said, uh, better not continue this voyage now. I know that it's going to be... Uh, great damage where we'll be risking trouble if we continue this voyage. Well, the centurion had a decision to make whether to continue the voyage at that time or not. And he got some information from the captain of the ship. said, no, we need to go. We need to sail. He asked the guy that owned the ship. The owner said, we need to sail. He got his information from Paul, who was a prisoner on the ship. No, you better not go. You're going to run into trouble. Now, Y'all, just naturally speaking, if you were on a ship and the captain said one thing and the owner said one thing and agreed and then one of the inmates said something different, which one would you probably go with? Well, that's what Julius went with, he said. And they waited. The wind was blowing fairly. They took off from Crete. They're heading over to Italy. And they ran into a terrible storm. So bad it got a name. It was a name storm, Euroclidon. 
And they were in a place where, I think it was about two weeks, they couldn't even see the sun or the moon or the stars. They didn't know where they were. And and they were taking on water, so they cast out the tackling of the ship. Now they couldn't control it, but I guess they figured, we don't know where we are, so why do we need to control? They were about ready to cast out their food supplies, the wheat, because they're sinking in the water. They're taking on water. And the Scripture says, at that point, all hope, that they were to be saved was taken away. But up on deck comes the prisoner, the Apostle Paul. And he said, This night, the angel of the Lord, whose I am and whom I serve, appeared unto me and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for thou must appear before Caesar, and lo, the Lord hath given thee all that sailed with thee. And I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Now, what a strange thing for the prisoner. I guess he was gaining some credibility. He walked up and basically said, Sirs, you should not have continued this voyage and risked this loss. He says, "Uh, God's given us all the people on the ship, but we're going to lose this ship. I guess he was gaining some credibility by this point since he told them they shouldn't sail in the first place. Now they knew they shouldn't sail. And so he told them, that he got the word that they were all going to be safe, that they were going to lose the ship, that they were going to be cast up on a certain island. All of that happened just as the Lord showed him. But here's what I'm after in that. When he came up, he was talking about God. It was an angel. And this angel was of God. And this is what he said about himself. This night, the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve appeared unto me. I want you to see how confident Paul was in who he was and what his identity was. He says his identity is this. God, whose I am. That means my identity is this. I am the property of the living God. I belong to God. That's who I am. That is my identity. And as a result, this is my activity. I serve Him. He's God, whose I am and whom I serve. That is who I am. Now I want you to ask that question of yourself. Who are you? I need to ask that question of myself. Who am I? And there are so many incorrect answers to that question. A lot of people want to identify themselves by their, by the way they earn a living. Some people say, I'm a doctor. Some will say, I'm a farmer. Some will say, I am a teacher. Some will say, I'm a mechanic. Some will say, I'm a salesperson. Some will say, I am a, a, a government employee. Brothers and sisters, that's not who you are. No. If that's who you are, It's really crushing if you get laid off or you retire. You see, that's not who how you how you earn an income is not who you are. If you change jobs, you don't become a different person. That's that's not your identity. And if you think it is your identity, get rid of that notion right now. That's not who you are. That's how God has given you a means to provide for your 
physical needs, how you make a living, it's important. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying it's not that important. It's not who you are. Some people think their identity is sins that they've committed. You ever heard a poor person that's in a bad way say, I'm a junkie. I'm a homosexual. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a felon. You ever heard anybody say that? That's really sad. The sins you have committed are not who you are. Those are acts that you've done that are displeasing and grieve the one who is Lord. But that's not who you are. Just as you can change jobs, you can overcome sins. You can overcome habits. You can overcome addictions. You can overcome these things. Because who you are is more powerful than the way you make a living or the way that you have transgressed God's commandments. Who you are is bigger than that. It's greater than that. It's more lasting than that. Some people identify who they are by certain human relationships. I'm a mom. I'm a dad. By the way, folks, I'm a granddad. (laughs) I like it. It's still, it's not who I am. It's not who I am. This, I rejoice in that. We rejoice in our human relationships. But it's sad. Somebody's identity is wrapped up in being a mom or dad and they get to the emptiness place where there's nobody home but them and the husband or them and the wife. All of a sudden they're at loose ends. Why? Because they've misidentified themselves. They've mis- you know, what a wonderful thing to be blessed, to have children are the heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His reward. What a wonderful thing it is to have if you're able to. Not everybody's able to. That's okay. We have different roles, different walks in life. Some people are blessed to do that, and it's a wonderful thing. It's a highly important thing. It's still not who you are. When the children are grown up and gone, when the grandchildren are grown up and gone, Your identity remains unchanged. It's not just your relationship with other human beings. It's not the way that you have sinned against the Lord. It's not the way you make a living. That's not who you are. This society is getting really off base in their answers. It's like I identify as this gender uh, today and that gender tomorrow and maybe another gender by 5 o'clock in the evening. Brothers and sisters, there's neither male or female in Christ Jesus. Even the real biological genders are secondary in importance. Somebody might say, well, I'm just a a poor person. Or somebody might say, I'm a billionaire. I own a company on the Fortune 500 list. It's It's not who a child of God is. That's not it. It's not their class. Well, I'm on assistance. Well, I sit on the board of two corporations. Big deal. You know, that's not who you are. It's not who you are. You're not even slave or free. That's a secondary characteristic. Jew or Gentile. I'm part American native. Big deal. I'm Hispanic. I am Pacific Islander. I am Inuit. 
It's all secondary. You know, we take great interest in that. We run 23andMe. We run Ancestry.com. We want to know. I'm part Irish and part Venezuelan or something like that. You know, it's okay. might help in a medical procedure. I'm not saying to do that is bad. What I'm saying is bad is all of a sudden that becomes who you are. Because who you are is not your ethnic or racial group. It is not your position on the social strata. It is not your gender. If you're a child of God, who you are is a child of God. Who you are is the possession and the property of the living God. And you've got an activity to be about. It's something that not only lasts for your life on earth, this is an everlasting job. What we do, what the Lord would have us to do is to worship Him, praise Him, serve Him, rejoice in Him, find our very being in praising God. That is who you are. Isn't it wonderful to have an identity that never changes, that doesn't depend on where you are, who you're with, what you're working at, what you've done in the past, what's going to happen to you in the future, it's an invariant identity. It can't be taken away. It can't be altered. If you have a hope in Jesus Christ, that's an evidence that by grace you've been made a child of the living God and that stands forever and it's who you are. Who is the Lord? Jesus Christ, the Savior of His people. Who are you? You are a child of the living God. What would God have you to do? Serve Him by being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed. What does that mean? It's the children of the promise, it tells us in Romans chapter 9 that are counted for the seed of Abraham. It means you're one of the many, many millions, billions of the children of the promise chosen in Christ before the world began. And if you be Christ then, are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise? Have you ever considered how many places, and I can't remember them, I just remember a few of them, speaking of you being in Christ there, there is... uh, as many of you have been baptized into Christ, but think of how, how you, it's first spoken of you being in Christ according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Chosen in Christ. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ are all made alive. Alright? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Can you see how wonderful it is? God's grace to be in Jesus Christ, chosen in Christ to be holy and without blame, chosen in Christ to live, or as in Adam all die in Christ, even so in Christ are all made alive, to be made new. What a wonderful thing. I want you to know that this identity that you have as a child of God and as the property of God is expensive. We just sang the song. 
Sometimes when I think of the cross, I find much sorrow there. It's sad that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered the things He suffered because of the sins that I've committed. That's sad. And I can't adequately describe His suffering. It goes beyond the blindfolding and the spitting on His face, the striking of His face with the palms of the servant's hand and the rod on His cheek. It goes beyond the time they scourged Him and tore the skin off His back and put the crown of thorns on His head. It goes beyond the nails they put in His hands and His feet. It goes beyond the mockery and the shame of hanging naked on the cross while they gambled for His garments. It goes beyond anything that can be seen by human eyes because when the Lord executed wrath and justice upon His Son, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, there transpired something that goes beyond human telling. He was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And there, as He hung, He paid for every sin of every human being that's a child of God that's in Him in every age of human history. And He completely removed every sin so that He would not lose one of His children that God had given to Him. That's an expensive thing. Do not take your identity as a child of God, as the property of the Most High God, as one who should rightly do His bidding. Do not take that lightly. It's been bought at great cost. There is no sacrifice that we can make. There is no price that we can pay that would even begin to touch what price was paid so that we could be a child of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you. The Word of God found in John chapter 20. Reading verses 1 through 16. John chapter 20, starting verse 1, reading through verse 16. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto him, saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, 
and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed, for as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. My message to you this afternoon is for the child of God in Jesus Christ. Reality is always better than your perceived circumstance. Mm. Yeah. And I want to get to that, but that's the message. <laughs> Reality for the child of God is always better than the situation that a child of God thinks they are in. But let me go to this, and I want to speak particularly, well, every message of real preaching is about Jesus Christ. But let me approach it through a particular individual, and that's Mary Magdalene. Last night I tried to speak on Manasseh, and especially that last verse of hymn number 355 in these hymnals. That sacred flood from Jesus' veins was free to take away a Mary or Manasseh stains or sins more vile than they. The Manasseh, speaking of, in that spoken of in that hymn, is Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king over Judah for 55 years. And tried to speak about him last night. This Mary in the hymn is the Mary that we just read about in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene. Now, you kind of have to be a little careful to keep folks with the same name straight in the Bible. For example, you know, there's John the Baptist is different from John the Apostle. John the Apostle is the one writing this, this uh, gospel here, the book of John. By the time he wrote that, John the Baptist was dead. He had been put to death by Herod. It's different Johns. There are two James that were among the twelve disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, James the brother of John, sons of Zebedee, and James the son of Alphaeus. So there were two James. And then there was a third James that was the half-brother of Jesus Christ that wrote the book of James. So you have to keep straight. Two of the apostles were James, and the one James that wrote the book was not an apostle. He was the half-brother 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ's mother was Mary, and his father was God. With James, his brother, his mother was Mary, and his father was Joseph. So you have that situation. Now with Mary, you had Mary, the wife of Joseph, the mother of Jesus Christ. You could call her Mary of Nazareth if you wanted to. That's where she was when she met Joseph and got engaged. There was Mary of Bethany. She was the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and she's the one that washed the Lord's feet with the precious ointment and wiped it with her hair. This is a different Mary. This is Mary Magdalene. There was a town in Israel called Magdala, and so if you were from that town, Magdala, you were a Magdalene, and that's where she was from. And what the Scripture tells us about her is that the Lord Jesus Christ cast seven devils from her. Now, as I mentioned last night, I don't know where everybody gets the idea that she was a prostitute. The Bible doesn't say that. That may have been included among her seven devils. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But there's no need to add things to the Bible. In fact, there's a positive harm in adding or taking away from the Bible. Let's just take the Bible of what it said. This poor woman had been grievously afflicted. One devil enough causes enough destruction in a person's life. Mary was contending with seven until her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, set her free, cast those from her so that she had a peace and a freedom and an ease that she had not known until she experienced that miracle at the hands of her Savior. So this is Mary Magdalene. And the Scripture records her as the first human being to see the Lord Jesus Christ after He was resurrected. And we've just read the incident where she saw Him. That sacred flood from Jesus' veins was free to take away a Mary or Manasseh stains or sins more vile than they. Jesus Christ's blood that He had shed on the third day before this had taken away all the stains from Mary. And she was still alive. It had taken away all the stains of Manasseh. That's about six or seven hundred years before. Aren't you glad that the blood of Jesus Christ still takes away sins and stains in 2022? Isn't it a great thing to celebrate the hope that Jesus Christ has taken away my stains? And He did it with His own blood. He did it laying His own life down. And while I bled and groaned and died to Him, says, I ruined Satan's throne. The verse before that says, While hell and all its spiteful hordes stood dreadful in my way to rescue those dear lives of yours, I gave my own away. That's what Jesus Christ did for Mary. That's what He did for Manasseh. My great hope, firm belief, that's what He did for me. Child of God, that's what He did for you. When hell and all its spiteful hordes stood dreadful in His way, to rescue those dear lives of yours. He gave His own away. So His life, He laid down on the third day before this. Now this was the third day after He had said, It is finished. 
When he said it is finished, the work of redemption was indeed finished. That great unspeakable suffering was complete. The souls and the destiny of all God's children had been purchased. At that point, instead of just saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He once again addressed God as Father. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He committed his spirit into the hands of his Father, and he, as he said he would, he laid down his life. The Sabbath was drawing on fast. I think from my study of Scripture, the Sabbath that was coming was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread in which no servile work could be done according to Leviticus 23. And so there was a Sabbath there and then there was another Sabbath that was the end of the week. And then on the third day, it was dawn and Mary was headed to the tomb to finish the work of embalming. You know, Joseph of Arimathea had lent his tomb. Nicodemus had come with a hundred pound weight of spices. They had done the initial preparation of the body and wrapped his body in linen and laid it in that grave donated by Joseph of Arimathea. But the embalmment was not complete and the women knew about it and they wanted to finish the job. But there was a Sabbath right after they laid him in the grave. There was a Sabbath after that. Now, here's the first day they can do something about it. It's the first day of the week. If their calendar were the same as ours, we'd call that Sunday. That's why we designate to meet on Sunday, the day that the Lord had risen. That's when the disciples gathered. And so here it is. It's the first day of the week. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early. When it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. This caught her by surprise. The other Gospels tell us that as the women came to the grave there, they were worried about that stone. They wanted to do the job. It's the first day they could do the job. They didn't know who was going to roll that heavy stone away from them. Probably going to be hard to convince the guards that were there to do the job. They didn't feel like they were up to the job. They were concerned about that. But when they got there, they saw something marvelous. The stone was rolled away. I think it's the Gospel of Matthew that tells us a great angel had descended from heaven and had rolled the stone away, not necessarily to let the Lord out, but to let other folks in to see that it was empty. He had rolled the stone away and sat on it. You talk about victory. He rolled the stone away and he sat on it and the keepers of the guard there became as dead men. They were so scared. They were laying down. So they got there. She got there. You know, just because it describes that she was there doesn't mean the other women weren't. You know, some gospel says there was one angel Some gospel says there were two angels. Do you know, if there were two angels there, there was indeed one angel there. (laughs) It's like if Sandy and I went to this meeting, somebody could ask you, uh, was Brother Marty at that meeting? Well, yes, he was. Somebody else could ask somebody, who was there? Well, Brother Marty and Sister Sandy. Well, they just told me Brother Marty. Well, both of them were true. Somebody just left out the prettier of the two. (laughs) They're both true. All these gospel accounts are true. Amen. And so, and they harmonize. So they see she sees the stone rolled away. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. If you wonder who that was, was John. John who wrote this. We we don't find that out to the end of John when he mentions that disciple whom Jesus loved and, and speaking about him. And then at the end of the gospel it says, This is that. This is that disciple who wrote these writings. 
And if uh, all that Jesus did had been written down, even the world itself should not have contained the books that would be written. So this is John and Peter. They're running. John's a faster runner than Peter. So John gets there first, but he stops short of just going right into that grave. Peter comes, and in very much Peter fashion, you know, he was afraid to confess the Lord Jesus on the third day before this. Now he goes right into the grave and goes in and sees it empty. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So they both, so they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes but wrapped together in a place by itself. This was not a grave robbery. If it had been grave robbers, those guys would have been as fast as they could. Take everything. Napkin, linen clothes. They would have just been in and out. This was not a matter of a grave robber who would have torn up the napkin, torn up the clothes, see if there's any jewelry, see if anything that was... No, this was an orderly thing. This was a napkin taken, wrapped by itself, lying there, the linen clothes there. This was, this was a matter of order and purpose. This was a statement, something was finished. The time in the tomb was over. The Lord had laid it that way. For as yet... Well, let's see, then it says, And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped, by its, wrapped together in a place by itself, then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and he believed. Do you know what John believed at that point? That the body was stolen. That's what they believed. They didn't believe that the Lord had risen from the dead at this point. They believed what Mary had told them. The tomb is open and somebody has taken his body. And they went in and took a look and they didn't see the purpose and the order of the clothes. They just saw the fact he was gone and they believed what they had heard from Mary's report. They believed that somebody had taken his body. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. That verse itself explains what they believed. They didn't believe he was written, for they knew not the Scripture. Not only did they know not the Scripture, they didn't even think about what the Lord Jesus Christ had told them not long ago. He said, we go up to Jerusalem, and there shall the Son of Man be taken by the chief priests and scribes, and they shall mock him and bring him before the Gentiles who shall crucify him, and he shall rise again the third day. Somehow or other they forgot that. They were kind of like Manasseh, which means forgetful. So they came in and they believed what Mary had reported. The body was stolen, for as yet they knew not the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. So that was a sad departure. They went away thinking, now not only is He dead, but His very grave has been... has been... uh, just uh, mistreated. It's been despised. And that's what Mary believed too. Mary stood without at the sepulchre weeping, 
And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Can you imagine the disappointment of Peter and John and Mary at this point? Can you imagine Peter and John had followed him about three and a half years? Had seen him calm the winds and the waves? Had seen him heal the blind? Had seen him cleanse the lepers? Had seen him cleanse unclean spirits? Mary herself had experienced that. Peter had walked on water. All of those things, thinking, what a great hope. God has fulfilled His promise. We've got the Messiah with us. Freedom is on its way. Victory is on its way. Our lives have purpose. Our lives have endurance in God. Our lives have light. Our lives have joy. He's rebuked us a lot. We needed it. He's encouraged us a lot. We wanted it. What a great thing. And now, He's dead. And His grave has been abused. And Mary had been showing up to do what she thought maybe was the last thing she could do for the one that loved her, for the one whom she loved because He loved her, for the one that had set her free from seven devils, for the one that had given her a peace that she hadn't experienced before. She was there to do what she thought maybe was the very last thing she could do, finish embalming His body so that His body would be taken care of respectfully and not in a way of mockery uh, that he would receive a decent burial. And she was there to do that. And now not only was he dead, he was gone and his body was gone. And she couldn't do that. Can you imagine the depth of that disappointment? Can you put yourself in Mary Magdalene's shoes of that hope that seems so dashed, of that desire to do one last service that didn't come to pass, of a opportunity she may have felt that she missed but she was trying to do her best to obey God and keep the Sabbath and yet show up on the first day of the week and do what she could. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping and as she wept she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels in white sitting the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. You may have heard other people preach this recently, but it still seems wonderful to me. Do you all remember the structure of the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant had very definite dimensions given in Exodus, I think it's chapter 25. How many cubits it would be long? How many cubits wide? How many cubits deep? Made out of a special kind of wood inlaid and overlaid with gold, completely surrounded with gold, with rings for carrying it, with wooden staves coated with gold. And over that Ark of the Covenant was a mercy seat. had the same length as the Ark. had the same width as the Ark. It did not specify the depth or the height of the mercy seat. And to me that seems real appropriate. You know why? Because God's mercy endureth forever. <laughs> there's no limit. There's no given depth uh, that we can say that's the end of God's mercy. His mercy endureth forever. And on that mercy seat there were two cherubims. And they were on one end and on the other. And they faced each other and they extended their wings toward each other and so their faces were toward each other looking down at the mercy seat. And that mercy seat is rich with symbolism. 
You know, that was where the glory of God would appear from time to time to Israel. And to me, I think it's just wonderful that the glory of God was based on His mercy. The glory appeared above the mercy seat. And His mercy was based on His covenant. The mercy seat was over the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant contained the law, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which were kept by God Himself, by Jesus Christ as part of the covenant. And it kept a golden pot of the manna which had fallen from the sky because Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And it kept Aaron's rod which budded because Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Just on and on and on with this Ark of the Covenant. And here is on top of the Ark is the mercy seat and a cherubim on this side, cherubim on that side. And they're looking toward each other. But what is Mary looking at? When she looks down in that sepulcher, she sees that slab there where the body of Jesus Christ lay and an angel on one side and an angel on the other both looking at where he had lain. She was looking at the fulfillment of the mercy seat. Amen. What of you? Mm-hmm. But, did, but I don't think she knew. <laughs> she had a glorious view. Oh, once I had a glorious view. But I don't think yet she knew. So she's looking at the very fulfillment of the mercy seat. And seeth two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have lain, where they have laid him. She was honest about her disappointment. She wanted to do this last service. She wanted to see the body of her Lord one time, no matter what condition it was in, so she could finish that service to Him. And there were these two beings there asking her. She was just honest. They've taken her away. She still believed that. It wasn't true, but it was what she believed. And so she told them. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. This is not the only time the Lord appeared after His resurrection and withheld His recognition from those that loved Him. He did it with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus later. He's doing it unto Mary now. When she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Now, think of this situation. Behind Mary is the fulfillment of the mercy seat back down in the sepulcher. In front of Mary is the Lord Himself, the one who has purchased that mercy and kept that covenant on her behalf. So behind her is this wonderful vision of angels portraying the mercy seat. Before her is her Savior. She's surrounded by glory and glory And she's sad. Do you know that Jesus Christ by grace lives in you the hope of glory? Do you know by grace what your destiny is? It's glory. There's glory within you. There's glory to come. And you and I, like Mary, stand in between glory and glory, sometimes weeping, sometimes worrying, 
sometimes sad, sometimes disappointed with others, sometimes disappointed with ourselves, sometimes thinking of lost opportunities, sometimes thinking of broken friendships, sometimes thinking of the grief of those that we said goodbye to, sometimes thinking of our sins that we've committed, sometimes thinking of how are we going to take care of matters that are arising before us, all of that, but we like Mary are standing between glory and glory, and she's sad. But you know, even in her sadness, she's not willing to give up. I like this because the body's not there in the tomb. She's told the angels, and doesn't sound like they've told her anything more. Now she's talking to the Lord Himself, and she doesn't know that it's Him. In verse 15, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus Christ knew she was seeking. That's why I asked the question, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So even in her despair here, she's not giving up yet. She's still looking and she's willing to ask folks, and here's somebody near, maybe he has t- taken the body away. Maybe he has borne him away. So she asked him, Sir, you know, if, uh, uh, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. I'm still willing to do this. I'm still willing to try. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. And there was the moment of revelation. He spoke her name. You ever read in the book of Revelation that God will give to His children a name that only He and they know? There's a special relationship. There's a special... You want to talk about what your identity is. You're His child. You're His property. He's your Father. He knows His sheep and is known of them. He keeps His sheep with an everlasting love. The Father holds the sheep in His hand and no man is able to pluck God's sheep out of the Father's hand. And when He says Mary, she's still seeking for Jesus. And that's the message that I want to give you. Is no matter how sad you get, no matter how dim your hope seems, no matter what kind of condition you get, I want you to keep seeking for Jesus Christ. I want me to keep seeking for Jesus Christ willing to do that service even if we have to ask what can I do to go serve my Lord that Mary hasn't given up yet. She's way down. She's way sad. But what she doesn't realize is even in her sadness and her seeking, the glory of the mercy seat is behind her and the Lord Himself is before her. The reality that she is in is infinitely better than the circumstance she perceives. And that's the same situation you're in. You may not be at this moment in your life as sad as Mary was. You might be. I don't know what's going on with you, but God does. He does. You might be in a place of heartbrokenness or disappointment. I don't know, but God knows. But I do know this. For those of you that know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The Scripture tells us this truth in 1 John chapter 4, verse 15. 
Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. How many of you can confess? I don't know about my circumstance. I don't know about my situation or anything. But this I know. Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Amen. If that's your confession, the reason it's your confession is because God Himself dwells in you. He dwells in you. And you have been chosen in Him to one day dwell in His presence. God in you. You in God. Your reality is better than the best perception you have of your circumstance. Now, do you and I need to improve our circumstance? Yes, if we can. There's things I need to do to repent. There's more studying I need to do. There's more praying I need to do. There's more forgiving I need to do. There's more work I need to do. I realize that. But I know this truth is that whatever I perceive my situation and the things I need to improve about my day-to-day life, I know this reality is better than my concept of it. And that's the situation for you, child of God. And so when the Lord said, Mary, Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself. There's kind of a repentance, isn't it? Repentance from incorrect perception. Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. I hope that as we see how much better things really are than we think they are, that that will be our response to Jesus Christ, Master. Or as Thomas said, my Lord and my God. That's a wonderful thing to be able to perceive. If you're going through a period of sadness, hang on. Keep searching. Keep searching for Him. Keep calling out. There's mercy behind and glory before. Isn't that what David said in the 23rd Psalm? Surely goodness and mercy shall what? Follow me all the days of my life. That's what's behind. And I will, this is what's before, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a wonderful thing to think about dwelling in the house of the Lord with the One who paid for our sins and loves us with that everlasting love, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May God bless you. Amen. 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 Two sixty one. Come, he said.